This morning we are continuing our study through the book of Mark, and we're in Mark chapter 13. So if you got your Bibles out and you want to turn there uh, with me this morning, we'll put the words on the screen as well. If you don't own a Bible, by the way, there are some in the seat pockets in front of you. Uh, you might have to dig around. The chairs get moved around a little bit, but find one of those Bibles. Take it home with you. It's our gift to you. Nobody will tackle you in the parking lot on the way out. Uh, if you take one of those, we want you to have it. We want everybody to have access to the Word of God and to have a Bible. So um, please uh, take advantage of that if you need one. Uh, we're going to be in Mark 13, and we're going to go through the whole chapter. We're not going to read every single verse this morning, but I'm calling my message this morning, Stay Awake. Now, I wanted desperately to call it Stay Woke, just to mess with some of you guys. <laughs> You'll see why it's called Stay Awake, but that maybe tells you a little bit about my personality. I'm a little bit of an antagonist, so... Um, we're going to look at a lot of scripture this morning. We're going to cover a huge chunk of scripture, but we're going to focus really on the end of this chapter, on the challenge that Jesus gives to us to stay awake, to be awake, to be alert in the world that we're living in. But we're going to start at verse one and uh, kind of break this down section by section here. So Mark 13, verse one, we'll jump right into it this morning. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said, I'm going to ruin your day. <laughs> Do you see these great buildings? They will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, understand what they're talking about here. Jesus is referencing the temple that Herod built. Um, now, the original temple was kind of organized by King David, constructed by King Solomon. It was this glorious undertaking that took many, many years to complete. And every detail was planned out meticulously. It was this incredible worship center that was designed in the city of Jerusalem that uh, was built as, as the place, the focal point where the worship of God would, would happen, where the sacrifices would happen. This was the main worship center in all of the kingdom of Israel, and it was a really special place. And when Israel disobeyed God and, and fell into sin, um, they were taken away into captivity, and that temple was destroyed. And we read about, uh, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, how God's people came back and uh, were led by by um, Nehemiah to reconstruct the walls around the city of Jerusalem and were led in the reconstruction of the temple. And when they finished the temple, they were like, you know what? This really isn't quite what we remembered it to be like. It was kind of a disappointing version of what had originally been created. But, you know, that's kind of what sin does in our lives, right? It takes away from what God really intended us to experience and gives us a uh, worse experience in life and the same thing happened for the people of Israel. And so they have this temple. Well, that temple was destroyed as well. And then along comes King Herod. And now King Herod was an amazing politician. Uh, he worked with the Roman government, but he was placed in that position as the, the king of Israel. And he thought, well, what better way to, to curry favor with the people of Israel than to build them a new temple? And so he built them this incredible temple that, that rivaled really what David had constructed 
At the beginning, it was a much more um, beautiful temple than, than what was constructed in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And it was an incredible place. And, and so they were marveling at this incredible construction. And Jesus is like, listen, this temple is going to be destroyed too. Now, the book of Mark was actually uh, written probably right around 70 AD. It would be right after the destruction of that temple. This prophecy had been fulfilled as Mark was writing these events. And I believe that the events that were happening around them and what was happening with the Romans uh, at that time reminded the witnesses that John Mark interviewed in the writing of this book. And they're seeing this prophecy played out and they're remembering exactly what Jesus said. Now, Jewish eschatology was something that was widely accepted that um, because of what had been prophesied in the Old Testament, um, this was the common uh, belief that, that there would be an Elijah-like figure, um, and the disciples are like, yeah, John the Baptist, that fulfilled that, and that was true, and then he would be followed by the Messiah, and they're like, we have Jesus, that's the next step, and then he would have a triumphal entry where he would come back into Jerusalem, that had just happened a couple of chapters ago, and so they're like, we're on stage three, now Jesus is going to step on the throne and rule this new kingdom of Israel, and we're going to have this brand new kingdom, he's going to overthrow the Romans, and it's going to be exactly like we pictured it to be. And Jesus kind of crushes them in this moment by saying, no, the temple right now, as it is, is going to be destroyed. So much so that one stone won't be left on another. You know, we read uh, through historical accounts of the destruction of the temple that the Romans actually came in and by hand, they would take the stones and pull them one off the other so that they could go in and rob whatever was left in the temple when they destroyed it. That that prophecy would be fulfilled literally. That they would by hand remove each stone from on top of the other. And so the disciples are probably feeling pretty heartbroken and devastated by this prophecy, or maybe they're not even fully understanding what Jesus is talking about. But as Mark is writing this, they've seen it. They've seen the fulfillment of this prophecy. And then in verse 3, it says, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Okay. Now, here's what Jesus is saying here, and this is a loose translation. This is the Paul Rizdal translation. Guys, bad stuff is going to happen. Don't freak out. All right? I mean, that's about as simple as you can break it down. Now, um, I'm going to just vent some of my personal frustration here. I get really annoyed sometimes with some of these end times experts 
who place special meeting on every single geopolitical event that happens and that has happened in the last 2,000 years to make some significant claim about the timeline of Jesus' return. Jesus is saying, hey guys, there's going to be a lot of bad stuff that happens. There's going to be wars, there's going to be earthquakes, there's going to be natural disasters, there's going to be famines. All of these things are going to take place. Don't panic. Relax. Take a deep breath. In fact, he even concludes this thought by saying, these are the beginnings of birth pains. In other words, the kingdom of God is being birthed on this earth, that the work that Jesus did was a launching point for everything that would happen in the future. And sometimes we have such a myopic view of God and who he is. We're so focused on me, myself, and I, and so focused on everything that's happening to us in this moment that we forget that God's perspective is so much bigger than ours. It's so much bigger than our brains can comprehend. And so these wars and these natural disasters are just the beginning, the contractions at the beginning of the birthing process to indicate what is coming. Now, how many know that, that the process of having a child is not completed the moment that that child is born, right? There's still an entire life in front. Like, I mean, even the process of parenting, like you're just beginning the process, right? It doesn't start with the contractions and end with the birth and now you're done as a parent. No, like that's the beginning. And that's what Jesus is saying here. This process of my kingdom being established on this earth, there are a lot of things that come with it. And when you see things, Don't freak out. It's not the end. It's the beginning. Verse 9 says this, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are about to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against their parents and have to put them to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. All right. I want to just um, go back and, and highlight one quick statement that is made in this passage. Um, it says in verse 10 that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. All right. I want us to understand what Jesus is saying here because I've heard this misapplied before many, many times. Um, some people will take that to mean that the gospel has to be proclaimed to all nations in order that Jesus can come back so that if, if we somehow will do our part and do our job, we can accelerate the timeline of when Jesus comes back. All right, scripture's pretty clear about this process. Jesus is going to come back when it's time for him to come back, okay? So we don't have to worry about like, well, if we don't do this and we don't do that, and we are not in control of God's timeline, okay? It's pretty arrogant to think that. 
What he's actually saying here, what he's telling the disciples in this particular passage of scripture is he's saying, you're going to face persecution, you're going to face hardship, you're going to face struggle. People are going to hate you, people are going to pick on you, people are going to persecute you, they're going to even kill you. Don't stop preaching the gospel. It has to happen. Don't give up. Don't slow down. Regardless of the cost, this is too important to the world around us. And that is the sense of urgency that he's communicating in this particular passage. But this is the hard part. Like, the disciples are seeing the fulfillment of what they think is this transformational moment in where, where Jesus is going to sit on the throne and rule the nation of Israel and, and restore it to its former glory under King David and, and have a political kingdom that will last forever. And Jesus is saying, no, you're missing the point. You know, interestingly enough, I said this book was written about 70 AD. Um, most scholars think that Peter actually died probably somewhere in the reign of Nero between 67 and 69 AD. This is fresh off the loss of probably the person that, that most Christians would view as their leader. And so they're in this moment, Mark is writing this down and realizing exactly what Jesus is saying. He's seeing the fulfillment of this prophecy come right in front of him. Now, some of the other disciples were martyred before this book. Some were martyred afterwards, but they were seeing this incredible persecution that Jesus had promised them being fulfilled in their eyes. And it was an encouragement to them to say, your mission is not in vain. There's power in what Mark is writing here. And that's a hard truth, right? I mean, this is going to be a brutal journey Jesus is reminding them, though, that their hope is not in this life. What does he say in verse 13? You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures in the end will be saved. In other words, he's saying, you might lose your life on this earth, but your eternity is secure. Then Jesus goes on in the next section, and we're not going to read through this whole thing because you don't have time to read through the entire chapter this morning, but he talks about the abomination of desolation. Uh, now, um, there's a lot of debate as to what Jesus was referring to. In fact, this is something that the, the prophet Daniel referred to back in the Old Testament. And um, most scholars and, and Jews at this time believed that this prophecy had already been fulfilled. In fact, uh, about 150 years before Jesus was born, um, there was a Greek king who actually came into the temple and um, set up worship uh, to another god, and they believed that that was that fulfillment of that prophecy, that that was the abomination of desolation. And then Jesus comes and says, no, when the abom abomination of desolation takes place, and, and everybody's probably wondering, like, what are you talking about? It already took place. Um, so... What exactly Jesus was referring to at this point is a debate between scholars, and, and a lot of people believe that at some point the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem, and that it will be desecrated again in some way, and then Christ will physically return. Others believe that this refers to the destruction of Jerusalem, and the return of Christ is a spiritual metaphor, not a physical return at that moment. 
Um, and it's, it's interesting, and it's, it's a unique debate. And then he goes on and talks about this fig tree. And he says that these leaves are a sign of summer, just as these signs are an indication of things to come. Verse 30, he says this, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so what generation is he referring to? Is he referring to the disciples? Is he referring to the generation that will see these signs? Um, and, and this is the, the question that, that scholars are wrestling with, and that's the hard part about interpreting the prophecies of Jesus and the prophecies in Scripture. Um, I think this is where we, as the people of God, need to just do our best to take a step back and approach Scripture with humility. And I think um, there are a lot of things in Scripture that are abundantly clear that we don't need to wrestle with what exactly they mean. But when it comes to prophecy, and when it comes to things that are clearly meant by God to be unclear, right? I mean, if he wanted us to know exactly what the details were, he would have just said what the details were. But he left it intentionally vague for us to wrestle with it. And I believe that that's so that we can see these things happening in front of us and that, that scripture comes alive to us. It gives authority, it gives credibility to scripture as we see these prophecies fulfilled. And one of the things that Jesus is saying here and that he references earlier is that we should be cautious about anyone um, who makes claims to have this complete understanding about the world and about scripture and about who Jesus is. In fact, there are a lot of false teachers and false prophets and we ought to check people's motives, too. You know, there are people that prey on the church, um, that use biblical prophecy to gain for themselves. In fact, um, claiming that they have an edge in understanding the prophecies of Jesus and that um, you need their wisdom and their insight to reveal what Scripture teaches. And all, all it requires is your donation of 1995 or for you to buy their book uh, in fact, I came across an, a, a former Assemblies of God minister who was selling barrels of dry food because his interpretation of biblical prophecy was revealing that Christians would need these things to survive. And so for your $200 donation to his tax-deductible donation to his ministry, you could get a barrel of uh, blessed food that would keep you alive when these disasters happen. Now... I'm not here to criticize anyone for their beliefs about Scripture. By all means, study God's Word. Try to figure out what it says. Try to understand these things as best you can. Study the Word. I mean, it's in there for a reason. I'm not saying we need to ignore this. But do it with humility and do it with grace towards people who understand it differently. Um, you can see the, the difference between like what we talked about last week and, and, and what we're talking about this week, right? Jesus said um, last week, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, do we need any uh, incredible revelation or interpretation to understand what he's talking about there? No, right? It's, it's plain. It's clear. It's easily understood. And as we read about the abomination of desolation... Uh, that's probably a little bit more complicated, right? And it's okay that we don't have complete understanding exactly of what that means. 
But I'm perfectly comfortable saying this. He's giving us these prophecies and he's building credibility with the disciples by predicting something that they will ultimately see for themselves. As if to say, I was right about this, that means I'm right about the other stuff too. Right? When we see Jesus' words being fulfilled in our world, we can have confidence in the scriptures. We can have confidence in his teaching. And here's the deal. If we obsess with trying to figure out everything, like turning the Bible into some secret code language, then we miss the important stuff of what he's really trying to teach us. Jesus tells us that heaven and earth will pass away. In other words, all of these earthly events, everything that's going on in our world around us is a temporary concern. But then he says, but my words will not pass away. In other words, don't get caught up in the world's stuff. Don't get so wrapped up in everything going on around us. Focus on the things that really matter. Focus on building the kingdom. Listen, I can't control what the future holds. I can't control what events are going to take place. I can look at them and recognize God moving and God working in the midst of that. I can see them as, as birthing pains, as, as steps as, that need to happen in the process of God building his kingdom. But I can't change what's happening in the world around me. What I can change is what's happening inside of my heart. What's happening with my life? How am I using what God has given me, the time and the resources that he's entrusted me with to build his kingdom on this earth? Let's jump down to verse 32 and keep reading because I think Jesus sums this up so amazingly and so perfectly. He says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows not even the angels in heaven, nor the sun. He's like, I don't even know. Now, I, don't, I still don't understand how that works, right? Like, the Father, the Son, they're, they're one. The Father knows, Jesus doesn't. I, I don't understand how that works. It just says it in the Bible, and so I'm trusting in that, right? Not only, uh, or no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. He says it again, stay awake. So if that's Jesus' instruction to us, if that's what we're supposed to do with this prophecy that he's given us, what does that look like? Well, I want to suggest a few ideas. 
Here are some things that will help us stay ready. And, and I want to just emphasize this too. Verse 34 says this. He goes away and he puts his servant in charge, each with work. So if your plan is to let the other believers around you participate in this process and you can just kind of be a silent observer, that is not an option, okay? If you are a servant of the living God and you have trusted your life to Jesus, then this is your responsibility too. You can't pass it off to somebody else. You can't be along for the ride. Each one has a role as a purpose. So here's some ideas to help us stay ready. First one, know the word of God. The best preventative method for distraction is a solid foundation in the word of God. The Bible is an unending well of wisdom. Teresa said it just a second ago. Every time you open the Bible, you learn new things. I grew up with a basic understanding of the Bible and what the Bible says. I went to Sunday school, I took classes, I learned the Bible. And you know what? That is an incredible foundation to build on. You can't discover the depth and the riches of the Word of God unless you understand, first of all, what it says in plain sight. That's why, that's why we believe that kids' ministry is so important, why we're teaching our children the Word of God, why we invest in things like, like Junior Bible Quiz, because they're building a foundation that can teach them how to discover the riches of the Word of God. And eventually I got to college and I started studying Scripture in a different way and I began to understand how incredible the Bible is. It wasn't just facts and information. It wasn't just stories anymore. It was incredible truth. The Bible became more than just uh, an instructional document or, or even an informational thing. It was, it was a living word. I could open it up and read about my story in God's word. That the things that I read could be applied directly to my life. That was a transformational understanding. And now every week I open up the Bible, I get to study, I get to prepare to preach. And I learn something new every time I do it. It's amazing. I've said this probably a hundred times. We have greater access to the word of God than we've ever had in history. You can take your phone and look at hundreds of different translations of scripture. But we are more biblically illiterate than we've ever been. God's word is a gift to us. And if we don't take advantage of it, we don't read it, we don't study it, then we're doing ourselves an incredible disservice. Part of winning the battle is training properly. And scripture is our training. It's how we learn about God. It's how we learn about his nature and his character. It's how we understand what wisdom really is. And we need to get in it. Here's the second one. Be connected to the Holy Spirit. Consistent prayer. Listening to the voice of God. Allowing the Holy Spirit to guide you. You know, sometimes in the church, we treat the Holy Spirit like Jesus' weird cousin. You know what I mean? It's like, 
yeah, I, I get Jesus, I understand him. I, the Holy Spirit, I know he's in there, but uh, it's, kind of, it's kind of uncomfortable for me to talk about. And, and what we do when we think of him that way is, is we just push him to the side and we ignore him. But you know, when Jesus left this earth, when he left his disciples, he said, it's better for you that I go. That's how important the Holy Spirit is. That it was better for Jesus to leave his disciples so that they could have the Holy Spirit in his place. That's powerful. He left us with the instruction that we were to wait for the Holy Spirit to begin the work of ministry. So we need to exercise the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 6 talks about the armor of God. Right? Maybe you've read that passage before. It talks about the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It talks about the shoes that we wear that are the preparation of the gospel of peace. And then it goes on to talk about the fact that we're not just supposed to put on the armor of God but we're to pray in the Spirit at all times with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. God gave you the Holy Spirit because he wants you to engage with the Holy Spirit, to stay connected to the Holy Spirit. It's the power of God for what he's called you to do. And if we're not listening to his voice, if we're not intentionally operating in the gifts that he's given us, then we're shortchanging what God can do in our life. He wants you to be filled with his spirit. He wants to move by his spirit in your life and in your ministry. There's a third one. Stay missionally minded. Jesus' message to his disciples, despite persecution, this needs to happen. You need to preach the gospel. You need to keep it up. No matter what happens to you, this is too important for you to let it slide. If it was that important to the disciples that they were to literally sacrifice their life for the mission of the gospel, what makes us think that it is not just as important today? There's a world around us that's hurt and dying and going to hell. And God has placed us here on this earth. He's called us and he's chosen us to be the extension of that gospel message to the world around us. If you are a servant of Jesus Christ, you are included in this call, like we read just a second ago, each servant with work to do. I remember when this really connected for me. I was working as an intern at a church. I had grown up going to a, a Christian school. I attended a Christian college. At that point in my life, all my friends were Christians, and I hung out with people from my church, and I discovered this incredible calling. God put a burden on my heart to see lost people come to know him. And so I made it a mission that no matter what I'm doing in life, no matter what my job is or what my role is, that I will intentionally be around people who need Jesus, who don't share in my faith. And, and listen, that can, it can be really easy to be insulated as a Christian. You know, depending on what you do for a living or, or 
who you hang out with. Sometimes it's easier just to hang around with people that agree with us, that think the same way that we do, to hang around with other Christians. Like, because when you hang around with people that, that don't follow Christ, then you're going to have conflict and you're going to have tension. They have different values than we do. But I've made it my personal mission. I'm always going to have people in my life that don't know Christ. And if I don't, I'm going to go find some. Right? What if we had that attitude as the church? To be intentional about sharing the gospel with those around us. Here's the last one. Invest in the eternal. Invest in the eternal. The book of Matthew tells us, don't store up treasures where, on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where none of those things can happen. He's talking about investing in things that will last beyond this lifetime. Listen, you can build wealth here on this earth. You can have an incredible portfolio. You can invest in a lot of different things. And, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that, right? You should be wise with what God has blessed you with and, and you should uh, take care of, of what he's entrusted you with. But ultimately, all that stuff is going to burn up. It's not going to last. It's not going to have eternal value. At some point in your life, you're going to die. And even if you pass it on to your kids, they're going to die too eventually. Right? This time that we have here on earth is temporary. But eternity is a reality. And we need to be investing in eternity. That's why it's important that we give financially. That we make investment, not just in our local church, but in the, the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ, investing in missionaries who are going around the world and sharing the truth with people who have never even heard the name of Jesus before. Right? That's part of what, why we do what we do. And listen, your investment in that is more important than your investment in the stock market or in uh, you know, your retirement account or whatever it might be can make a difference around the world if we trust God in every area of our lives, and that includes our finances. But also, maybe the greatest gift that you have, maybe the thing that is most valuable to us is your time and your energy. See, different people have different amounts of money, and, and you know what? One amount of money might be a lot to one person. It might be nothing to the next person, but here's the, here's the truth. We all have 24 hours in the day. And each day is an equal opportunity for you to invest your life in the kingdom of God. And some of the things that we talked about, reading the word of God and training and, and listening to the Holy Spirit and developing your prayer life, but also in mission. Invest your life in the world around you to build something that will last beyond your life, that will have eternal value. invest your time in, in building your house or working on your car or um, improving in your job or making more money. All of those things are choices and none of those things are necessarily wrong. But what are you investing in something that will last? Jesus said, all of these things will pass away, but my words won't pass away. Well, the words that you speak that 
make a difference in the kingdom of God, the encouragement that you give to somebody else, the actions that you do to serve others and to show the love of Christ to someone, those things also have eternal value. Isn't that incredible? In the same way that Jesus said his words will last forever, your words can have eternal value too. The words that you speak can speak life to the world around you. It can make a difference in someone. You can hear what you have to say. It can be transformative because the power of life and death are in your tongue. We need to invest in the eternal. We're so short-sighted sometimes. We get so focused on the thing that's right in front of us. get obsessed with, with things that really don't matter. But God is calling us to something that does last. To something that truly makes a difference. So what I'm going to ask you to do is, as we close today and as I, I pray, would you just ask the Holy Spirit to show to you, show you what you can do ready for the return of Christ. I don't know when he's coming back, and the truth is, it doesn't matter. He's going to come back when he's going to come back. I want to do everything I can to take every advantage of every opportunity of every moment that I have on this earth to see the kingdom of God built in my life. Imagine the difference that it can make in our world. Listen, I believe this with all my heart, that we are not just a church that affects this community, that what God is doing here has ripple effects that will affect the entire globe. Isn't that incredible that we get to be a part of something that's that big and that's that massive? So I'm going to pray, and I ask that you just listen to the Holy Spirit as I pray. Let him speak to your heart this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, we, we humbly approach your word. We ask you to be our teacher. Lord, help us to see scripture in the light that you want us to see it. To not be obsessed with solving the code recognizing that you're at work in the world around us. Lord, help us to see the power of our words and our actions and the time that you've given us here on this earth. Lord, I pray that you would help us to make an investment in eternity while we're here. And Lord, I pray for conviction. Lord, we're in areas where we've been of what you've wanted to do. Lord, I pray that, that you would speak to our hearts right now, God. That you would renew that calling. But I believe that there are people here right now that have let a calling that you've placed on their life 
be pushed to the side and you want to renew that this morning. Pray that you would start renewing that in this moment. God, that you'd stir that up again, that they would be reminded of a promise that you've made to them right now in this moment. And Lord, that they would have a renewed passion and energy to fulfill that calling. Lord, I pray for areas of our life that we are struggling to surrender in. I pray that in this moment that we would give you full control this morning.